This is chapter 14, entitled, Shard's Past Saves Hope. In the last chapter, remember that uh, Shard wondered why Bone defends mobsters. He also plugged in his suspects to Hakon's relationship with his son, and the problems with what Shard called nest holders, and man's relationship to reality, to pin down his murderer. In this chapter, Shard's going to search for, quote, where the legs meet, end quote, and he figures out who's behind the assassination attempts on him, why the two Rochester women were murdered, and he and Johnson arrive just in time to save Hope. He then calls Ellen. This is a Wednesday night. Shard and his Morgan. Shard didn't enjoy his repast at Schuyler's. He didn't have anyone he cared to talk to. Mrs. O put too much cabbage into him, and O'Reilly was downright taciturn. More unsettling, Shard couldn't turn his mind off. He began to doubt that Bradley was the only answer to the mystery. Something was wrong with that conclusion, even if his premises were correct. Hakon, the nest holder, jealousy affairs, fictitious characters, and even his possible involvement with the nest holder, all made sense. But at the same time, it didn't. The solution was too pat, and at the same time, not neat enough. The drifts in his driveway loomed over the hood of his crown Vic. Absent-mindedly, he gave them a few smacks with front end to get the cruiser off the street. He waded through the snow to his carriage house. He needed something to settle his mind, and also Mrs. O's cabbage. He switched on the overhead bulb and admired his Morgan's classic lines. Without thinking, he took a camel from the bottom of his old-fashioned fuse box, pulled up his stool to just do a little polishing. As he cleaned out the crevices around the spare tire on the Morgan's rear end, his mind stepped back to Hakon's images of reality and concluded that Bradley did have the best motives for killing Denise. The difficulty was that he explained only half the puzzle. Try as he might, he couldn't connect Bradley to Iorio's attempt to kill him, and he had no evidence that the two men knew each other and couldn't imagine Iorio had the slightest interest in Denise's murder. Shard almost believed that they must be two separate cases, Denise and something else. It was the something else that eluded him. As he carefully polished the spare's chrome spokes, he decided that to solve the puzzle, he had to figure out Iorio's version of reality. He hardly knew the man, except for that one meeting and his fleeting acquaintance with the boss's hired killers. That only indicated that Iorio's view of reality was powerful enough to prompt him to kill a cop something his ilk was loath to do. He must have reasoned that Shard was such a serious threat that he sent his top hired legal gun to ensure that Joe Pinelli didn't talk. Iorio feared something, but what? The image of Iorio's Yale lawyer popped up in Shard's mind. On the face of it, he was too well-trained and too socially prominent to dirty his hands with such cases. Shard's mind drifted off to the fact that Ruth didn't think much of the man, probably because he was unfaithful to his wife. She had given him a list of some of Bone's prominent clients, among which Shard remembered were Abet and Eckert's. He chewed over the implications of that. Denise worked for Eckert's, Pressman for Abbott, a drug firm and research company Pressman swore wasn't one. Denise worked for Eckert's, which Bone represented. His mind heard Ruth saying that he screws his clients and their wives. Had he slept with Denise? Should Periwinkle have added him to her chart? 
Suppose Bone and Denise had had an affair, Shard asked himself. That would connect Bone, Shard, and Denise. But Iorio couldn't have known about Shard's relationship with the victim, and that couldn't threaten anyone, unless the threat was from Bone and Denise. But why would Iorio care who Bone slept with? He reputedly slept with many women. But then a tiny voice in the back of Shard's mind asked, how many of them had been murdered? Shard no longer noticed the spokes. He began to see something more important, the place where the two legs came together. If Iorio knew that Bone had slept with Denise, and knew that she had been murdered, he might have assumed that his lawyer had done it. The more Iorio considered the possibility, the more it would have become the truth for him, a reality like Hakon's. What would Iorio do? He could kill Bone, but he didn't. He would protect him because he needed his legal talents and respectability and could be trusted to keep his mouth shut. So instead, Iorio tries to kill Shard? That's the part that didn't make a lot of sense. His ruminations were interrupted by a sharp knock on the service door. Shard first thought Iorio was reading his mind and had sent another hunchman to kill him. He glanced at his watch. It was almost 10 o'clock. Too late for visitors. He couldn't remember where he left his pistol, but suspected it was on his bedside table where it had been for months. He quietly tiptoed over to the door and picked up a six-foot pry bar that his father had kept there. At the same time, he clicked off the lights. While he waited for his eyes to adjust to the blackness, he heard Johnson yell, Oh, come on, boss! We know you're in there! Open up! It's cold out here! With relief, he opened the door. Why are you standing in the dark holding a crowbar? That's the biggest one I've ever seen, Johnson said. I didn't know who was out there. Given that I might have a target painted on my back, I'm taking precautions. You would have been safer with your thirty-eight, boss. Crowbars are a little old-fashioned these days. They were out of style back in medieval Norway. What brings you out in the middle of the night? Something wrong? It's almost as cold in here as it is outside, Periwinkle said. Don't you have any heat in this place? There's a wood stove over there but I'd be a little afraid to fire it up. I hate to burn the Morgan's house down. There's a chair over there by the workbench, a stool behind the car, and the car seat. Take your pick. Why are you here? I'm not going to sit in a car seat. The last occupant didn't get in or out by herself, remember, said Periwinkle. Okay, Shard said. Now, why are you here? We got to talking after you left, and we thought you were a little strange this afternoon. After your mental wanderings and conclusion that Bradley killed Denise, you really didn't seem to believe it. After chewing it over, we decided that you know some things you're not telling us. Is that true? It's funny you should say that, Shard said. You're dead right. I did leave this afternoon unsure of whether Bradley's guilt explained all aspects of the case. It doesn't account for why someone is trying to kill me, or my gut instinct that the Albany and Utica mobs have come together to get me. More important, it tells me nothing about why they would want to. We wondered why you didn't address that aspect of the case, Johnson said. I suppose I was thinking a leg at a time. Since I left you guys this afternoon, I've been working on the other leg. I got nowhere until I sat down here to polish my spokes. Then all sorts of odd bits of information came together in line with my assumptions about how Hakon saw his world. Do you want to hear what I think? Wait a minute, boss, said Periwinkle, as she extracted a half-full bottle of single malt from her peacoat pocket. From the other, she pulled out three glasses. I think we need some warmth first, Norseman. 
Get us some snow to mix with the expensive warm medicines, will you? Shari lifted the lid on his pot-bellied stove, took out a camel, and sat on the workbench where Periwinkle served him with a half a glass of scotch with a small mound of crystalline snow in the middle. Thus fortified, he brought his colleagues up on his thinking on Iorio and Bone. That sounds reasonable, Johnson said, when Shard had finished. Before Shard could reply, Periwinkle said, It's all circumstantial, boss. You're piling assumption upon assumption. If one is faulty, your theory will tumble like a house of cards. Shard tried to wrap his mind around the image of a theory tumbling. He couldn't, but he understood exactly what she meant, the cliché to illustrate. You're right, he said, when he took a sip of scotch. Absolutely right. But let me pose this to you. Are you a Christian? I guess so, yes, she replied. Okay. I remember a religion professor I had at Albany who said that if you didn't believe Jesus was born of a virgin and rose from the dead, you can't be a Christian. Now, if you do believe those two things, you probably also believe hundreds of other truths about Christianity. What objective proof do we have for most of them? Many say it's in the Bible, parts of which are written hundreds of years after the events, which therefore makes hearsay evidence not admissible in court. Yet Christians strive to live their lives in accordance with such circumstantial premises, which makes them do strange things like wear hair shirts, self-flagellate, and make pilgrimages to forlorn places. I'm sitting out here in the cold trying to create a Bible to explain why some maniac is trying to kill me and tie it together with the story of a murdered woman. But you're not Jesus, Johnson said. If he was the son of God, all his assumptions about reality must have been true. He knows everything. No, I'm far from being Jesus, but we are detectives. What do detectives do? We create a string of evidence, some parts of which we can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, which have to have occurred to explain the crime. It's a heavy responsibility. For if we're dead wrong, we can cause great harm to the accused. So we have to be careful, which is what we're trying to do here. With luck, our version of reality will bear some resemblance to actuality. Char drained the rest of his glass. You wouldn't happen to have a little more of that warmth of the gods and a dollop of snow, would you, Periwinkle? As she refilled his glass, she said, All right, let's assume everything you've surmised about Iorio, Bone, and Denise is biblically correct. It still doesn't explain why Iorio is trying to kill you. He can't have known about your relationship with Denise 20 years ago, or maybe even lately. To be honest, boss, we don't either. That's exactly where I was when you came in. Shard swirled some of the scotch-laden ice around in his mouth. He thought it tasted better than sucking on scotch-coated ice cube. He decided he'd have to tell O'Reilly about this. Did I say where I was when you arrived? You did, boss, Periwinkle said. Good. So allow me to pile on more circumstantial evidence, derived from my assumptions about human proclivities. Go ahead, boss, said Johnson, as he poured himself a generous dollop from Periwinkle's bottle. You know, I like this stuff better with snow in it. We have no shortage of that, Norseman. It's just too bad that it doesn't rain scotch in the summer. Life would be perfect then, wouldn't it? Shard asked. I'd prefer beer rain. Yuck, Periwinkle said. We digress, said Shard. Here's how I see this, and I invite your comments. I think that Iorio discovered that Bone slept with Denise. I think Iorio then assumed his lawyer killed her. His first instinct was to protect his lawyer. He didn't consider Denise at all. 
What I'd give another glass of this fine scotch to know is when Iorio found out she was dead. If he knew before I found her, then he had two or three days to use her body to set me up for murder. But why you, Johnson asked. Why not anybody between Rochester and here? It doesn't seem smart to set up a police officer. Exactly, Norseman. And that's where another supposition comes in. Iorio had never met me, but I'm positive he knew about me from what Copper overheard Spinello Muscle talking about in its spaghetti joint in Albany. They tied Spinelli to Uncle Joe to an unnamed cop who has to be me. You know what else I think? I think that Iorio saw a chance to kill two birds with one stone. And that can't be a cliché, because I said it. Spinello hates me, and I think he pressured Uncle Joe to get me to stop threatening him. Uncle Joe saw a chance to make a profit and protect Bone at the same time. This is giving me a headache, boss, and I haven't even drunk half of my first glass of flavored snow, Periwinkle said. Which brings me to another supposition which I shall treat as fact. According to Shard, verses 11 through 21, I don't think Iorio knows anything about Denise's murder before he read his, her obit. Shard leaned over to a row of drawers on the workbench's left side, selected the one that his father had labeled miscellaneous nuts, scrabbed around in the pile inside and pulled out a camel. Where was I? Oh, yeah. I suspect that during that period Spinello prevailed upon Iorio to pin the blame for a murder on me and offered to pay his uncle to kill my Ellen and leave her body in my bed. How he knew about her is anybody's guess, but I'm convinced he did, because that's the gist of what Cooper overheard. So on that Saturday, Iorio sent Pinelli number one to Buffalo. Pinelli may be a great sharpshooter, but he's mentally slow. He killed an Ellen, all right, but the wrong one. Then he totes her body to Lyons, instead of Leiden, where he finds a cop named Tom Sharp. He deposits her body in poor Sharp's bed and reports to Iorio that he's accomplished his mission and his boss believes him. So we have two murders that ironically cross in or near Rochester. Both victims are discovered on cops' premises. Make sense? So far, boss, said Johnson, but this still doesn't explain why Iorio wants to kill you. Before I tell you that, is there anything left in that bottle of the God's elixir, Periwinkle? I need more proof before I bring this together. Johnson unwound his lanky frame from the door jam and disappeared in the driveway. Finally, not a flake falling, folks, he said as he returned with a full fist of snow. Nice alliteration, Norseman, Shard said. But back to the Bible, according to Shard. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen Iorio and Spinello's faces when they saw Denise's obit? They couldn't have missed the implied connection or misconnections. My hunch is that Spinello realized that Uncle Joe's boy screwed up and killed the wrong woman. I also think that he called Uncle Joe to explain. Uncle Joe then discovered that his sharpshooter couldn't remember his own phone number. Spinello had no idea Bradley killed Denise, and Iorio thought Bone had done it. I'll bet you a box of Cuban cigars that for different reasons they concluded that someone had done their work for them and they'd gotten what they wanted, namely me, out of the way. And I'll also wager they haggled over the money Spinello owed Uncle Joe. Spinello didn't think he got his money's worth, and Uncle Joe demanded full payment because a dead woman is a dead woman. But the legs still don't come together, boss. 
Besides, we're almost out of scotch, and it's getting colder than a well digger's proverbial fanny out here, Periwinkle said. That's a problem I can solve, said Shard. I have a cabinet full of this stuff in the house and central heat. Plus, you'll be pleased to know, Norseman, three chairs. Let's go. As he went out, Shard slid his fingers along the top of the doorframe and put the camel he found in his coat pocket. Inside, Shard stuck some wadded-up newspapers under the half-burned logs in the fireplace and tossed a couple of fresh ones on top and lighted the pile. You know where I keep Scotland's only important export, Norseman? Johnson returned with a bottle of 15-year-old Longmorn and handed it to Shard, who assumed his most engaging smile. Couldn't you find a 10-year-old single malt? I save this stuff for special guests. Sorry, boss, Johnson said, but please finish your Bible. It's almost done, Viking. I don't know the exact timing from that fateful Saturday on, but I'll wager Iorio recognized Denise names in the paper and thought that it was providential that her body was in my carriage house. That exculpated his legal beagle and gave Spinello what he wanted. Therefore, Pinelli's screw-up didn't matter because Iorio was going to make Spinello pay anyway. Everything was just dandy. If, if it's all dandy, why are the guys shooting at you? asked Periwinkle. All contraire, my friend. He thinks that he does. I sealed my fate when I showed up at his office asking about Denise. Despite his macho show of force, I now know I worried him more than I thought. He knew nothing of Denise and me. But he thought he knew that Bowen had killed her and was scared. I'd find out. When I mentioned that Mansour murder to him, he realized that I was thinking that the two killings were connected. Little did he know how far I was from figuring this out. But that didn't matter. It mattered more what he thought was true. He concluded that if I was working on that angle, he had real problems. He, his lawyer, Pinelli, and his brother-in-law could all be implicated. If the others ratted him out, he'd face serious time. His safest course was to get rid of me and make a few bucks in the process. That's almost as good as a saga story, Johnson said. I've gone one better. I've written a Bible. That's why the Kaiser pays me the big bucks. Wednesday night, later, alone, after Periwinkle and Johnson left, Shard poured himself a couple of fingers of Longmorn and settled into his favorite chair to watch the fire burn down. He was tired, but he couldn't switch his mind off. He felt confident that he was right. Bradley had killed Denise, and Iorio was responsible for Ellen Mansour's death and had ordered the attacks on Shard. But a subconscious thought nagged at him, a loose end that didn't quite mesh with his construct. Shard roused himself and went out to the kitchen to retrieve a camel on the top of the mayonnaise jar in the refrigerator door. On his way back to the fire, it suddenly hit him. It wasn't a fact that had eluded him. It was an unasked question. Namely, why didn't Bradley kill Hope? Or more accurately, why, didn't he, why hasn't he already killed her? He tried to put himself in Bradley's place. He had almost pulled off a perfect murder, whether he intended to kill Denise or not. His name was on nothing. Winters was. He had eliminated a woman who threatened his manhood. He had denied him what he thought were his sexual dues, and worse, might be sleeping with the man who had once lived with his wife and perhaps was sharing her bed again. Kill Denise, blame the murder on Shard, a two-for-one. If I were Bradley, Shard thought, I'd be scared to death. She could provide the evidence that would unravel his perfect crime. She knew about Winter, and Bradley's pretty certain she did not buy his explanation about 
worming corporate secrets out of them. She may be a souse, Bradley thinks, but she's not stupid. Without a doubt, she has hidden those receipts somewhere to use as blackmail later. She's the only person, other than her unnamed friend, who can testify to his relationship with Denise. At the very least, if she suspects that Bradley and his paramour charged Winter's expenses off to Eckert's or Hoffman LaRoche's travel accounts, as Winter told Norseman, she could get him fired. The most important question, Shard realized, was whether Bradley knows she had talked to Shard. If he does, Hope's in real danger because he doesn't know what she told him, and he can't believe anything she says. His fears might be allayed, however, by the knowledge that a wife can't be forced to testify against a husband. But that means he'd have to stay married to her, and by now their relationship must be colder than the far side of the moon. Divorce wouldn't be as satisfying as killing her. Moreover, a divorce would leave her free to go to the police and testify against them. He can't live with her, and he's afraid to live without her, Shard concluded. He didn't have many options. He could kill her or run. That would buy him some time to decide what to do about her. But that wouldn't satisfy a Hakon's burning desire for the revenge he had to have at all costs. Therefore, Shard decided killing Hope was his only solution. Shard didn't know whether he'd try to pin the murder on him or not, but that wasn't the important question. Shard took his last sip of scotch and stirred the coals. I should warn her, he said to a few remaining glowing embers. The clock on the mantel pointed to 642, and he wondered when he'd last wound it. He checked the one on the stove and re reported 1207. Little lady informed the stove, but never too late, huh? He looked up her number and dialed. He let it ring dozens of times until he was certain that her answering machine was switched off. As much as I hate the idea of driving to Utica at this hour, I have to, he mumbled aloud as he pulled on his black coat and fished a camel out of the sugar canister. Wednesday night in Utica. He parked his car in a dry cleaner's lot on the corner and walked in the street up the block. The house was all dark and there was no traffic. He slid his key sound noiselessly into the lock. As he shed his boots in the foyer, he saw only a pale gray light flickering in the den. She must have fallen asleep watching TV, he thought, or more likely passed out. He tripped through the living room and dining room to the den's archway, where he saw her sprawled awkwardly on the couch. God, how I hate that bitch, he thought. He picked up a heavy lamp, crossed the room, and swung its base down towards the back of her head. She chose that moment to turn over, and instead of crushing her skull, the lamp bounced off her shoulder blade. She screamed and rolled over onto the floor at his feet. Before he could strike again, she sank her teeth into his ankle. God damn you, he yelled, and smashed the lamp onto her back. The blow's awkward angle battered the light bulb and drove glass splinters into his hand. God damn it, he bellowed and dropped the lamp. While he checked his bloody hand, she scrambled to her feet and tried to run. He threw himself on top of her, knocking her down, grabbed her hair, and smashed her face again and again against the hardwood floor. She writhed and screamed and kicked, but couldn't free herself. Blood spurted from her nose. He relentlessly slammed her head on the floor, shouting, You drunken bitch, I'll teach you to sleep with that goddamn cop. She began to feel detached from her body. It was as if she were watching someone else being beaten. She couldn't even feel the pain anymore. Far into the distance she could hear someone cursing, but his words became indistinct. Then she slid into blessed unconsciousness. 
She relaxed. Her limpness only made Bradley angrier. He wanted to know what he was doing. He wanted her to beg him to stop like Denise had. He kept pounding her face on the floor to wake her up. Do something, he screamed. He stood and kicked her face again and again until blood flowed freely from her mouth. The more he kicked and the more she bled, the madder he became. You goddamn slut, when I'm finished with you, no man will ever look at you again, he promised. Over the sounds of blows and rants, Bradley heard the doorbell. He stopped and held his breath. It chimed again. He hoped whoever it was would go away, but he didn't. He wiped his bloody hands on his shirt and pants, walked to the living room window and peered at the front stoop through a crack in the edge of the curtain. He made out the shape of a very large man who pressed the button again. Thursday morning very early, Shard. As he backed out of the driveway, it occurred to Shard that he shouldn't be with Hope alone. He could draft any uniform hanging around the office pot to go with him, but he decided he'd rather have Johnson. Since the bars hadn't closed, he must be up somewhere. Shard stopped at headquarters and asked Neil, Do you know where John Sergeant Johnson is? Good evening, Lieutenant. You're out late tonight. I am. Can you find Johnson for me? Oh, I know where he is, or where he was about 20 minutes ago, at the Happy Turtle. Joe Duffy radioed Henry Polk that he'd just seen the sergeant's convertible in the Turtle parking lot. Well, call him at the Turtle, will you, and ask him to get up here as fast as he can. Where the hell is the Turtle, anyway? It's on the other side of the old canal back in the woods. I hear it's where the young folk go for fun. I'm too old for that, though. I have all my fun at home, Lieutenant. I'll bet Shard said and instantly regretted it. Johnson arrived within five minutes. Shard handed him a large cup of Bluter's best and explained what he planned to do. Are you sober, Norseman? he asked. I'm always sober, sir. It's an integral part of my Norwegian genes. We never get drunk. Fine. Get your pistol and find some shells for my shotgun. I'm not sure I have any in the car, and I'll meet you out back in three minutes. Shard took the front steps two at a time and crossed to the streetlight where he retrie retrieved a half a dozen camels. This could be a long night, he informed the streetlight. Thursday morning, very early, in Utica. On the drive down to Utica, Shard filled Johnson in on his earlier music. You really think he'd try to kill her? It's the most reasonable course of action. I'm not sure why he'd let her live this long. She didn't answer the phone. What do we do if she's not there? Then we revert to plan B, my good man. What is plan B? asked Johnson. I haven't a clue. They didn't see any cars near Hope's darkened house. Shard slipped shells into his shotgun and Johnson took his Glock out of his coat pocket. The doorbells chimed deep inside the house. They're loud enough to wake the dead, Johnson said. They rang again. This doesn't look good, boss. Hit it again. It may take her forever to get downstairs, or she may be afraid to answer the door at this time of night. Who knows? Most likely, she shacked up with Pressman. That's a possibility, Shard said. It might be my imagination, boss, but I think I saw a curtain move in the second window on the right. Shard held the doorbell down for a good five seconds. Open it up, it's the police, he called, in a voice he hoped was low enough not to disturb the whole neighborhood. You know, Norseman, even before you saw the curtain move, I had the gut instinct that someone's in there. Empty houses emit cold. They hate to be alone. This one isn't. Someone's in there. If so, boss, and if that someone doesn't want to answer the door, what do we do? And we're in Utica's jurisdiction. 
This is Mohawk County, isn't it? We work for the Mohawk County Sheriff's Department, remember? You know perfectly well, boss, that the Utica police supersede us down here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you bring your picks? Uh-huh. How long to get in the store? I don't want to have to bust it down. 30 seconds at most, boss. I aced lockpicking at uh, Bemidji. Did they really have such a course for credit? Yep. Damn useful one, too, he said, Johnson, as he swung the door open. The only light came from a glow in the back of the house. Someone's in here, Shard said. I can feel it. Keep a distance between us and be ready for anything. They eased into the foyer, and they could see well enough to avoid furniture. And their hearing sharpened in inverse proportion to their inability to see. Neither could hear anything. It's like a tomb in here, Johnson whispered. They went into the living room, where Johnson thought he'd seen a curtain move, but nobody was there. They walked quietly down opposite sides of the room into the dining room around the table. Nothing. They met at the archway into the den, where Shard spotted Hope's body on the floor. Holy shit, is that what I think it is, he asked, forgetting his admonition to keep quiet. Switch on the lights. The bulbs in the brass wall scones temporarily blinded them. Shard rubbed his left eye and looked down again. Oh, Christ, it's Hope, he said as he knelt on to examine her. Someone has beaten the hell out of her, he said. He slipped his hand into the gore behind her ear to feel a pulse. I can't feel anything. As he scooted on his knees, he heard a faint wheeze where he pa when he passed her face. He bent over and carefully looked. Her nostrils flared ever so little with each breath. He reached under her, gently pulled out her left arm, and lightly pressed his thumb on the inside of her wrist. He could feel a slight indication of a pulse. I was wrong, Norseman. She's still alive, but barely. Call 911. Tell them to get an ambulance and police over here pronto. And keep an eye out for Bradley. He could be in there somewhere. Thursday morning, very early in Hope's house. While he hovered over her, Shard became acquainted with the vagueness of time. He later figured it took no more than seven or eight minutes for the EMTs to arrive. But the wait seemed so long he believed that God had blown dirt into the inner workings of his universe to retard its clockwork. Even the grandfather clock in the dining room seemed to tick more slowly. At this rate, Shard thought the Kaiser's re-election would be over before help gets here. Einstein was right, Norseman. Time isn't perfectly linear, is it? I could have told him that, boss. Now how long a hot date lasts? About eight seconds. A really bad date? Four days. I wonder if Einstein ever had a date. He must have. He had kids. Are you watching the doorways, Norseman? Bradley's in here somewhere. I don't think Einstein had anything to do with this. For one thing, he wasn't Norwegian. The door chimes interrupted their discussion of relativity. Someone announced, Utica Ambulance Services? Did someone here call us? A door wide open in the middle of winter night should have answered their questions, Shard thought, but he held his tongue. Whoa, what a mess, the EMT said delicately. Someone beat the hell out of her. Is she still alive? Shard was losing his patience. If she were dead, would I have called you guys? She's hanging out for dear life. He didn't even apologize for the cliché. Two Utica cops pushed past the EMTs. What happened here, the smaller of the two asked. And who are you? Shard and Johnson showed them their ID. We just got here, he said, and we think the guy who did this might still be in the house. If one of you will guard the back door, while the other watches the front, we'll search the place. Just don't let him get away, okay? Johnson expected the two Utica cops to object to being ordered around by a sheriff's deputy, but they didn't. 
Maybe it was Shard's command voice that made the difference, he thought. Come on, Norseman, let's go. We'll check the back of a house, and if uh, we find nothing, we'll head upstairs. The largest of Utica's finest was already in the kitchen with a light on when they walked in. Is the back door bolted from the inside, Shard asked. The cop looked at it. Yep. What's behind the door over there, Shard asked. I don't know. You told me to guard the outside door. Shard grimaced but said nothing. He opened the door and found an unoccupied half-bath. The door next to it revealed a large pantry with floor-to-ceiling, almost empty shelves. They didn't eat much, did they, Johnson said. Who'd want a wife who didn't cook? Shard threw him a, sh a sharp look that suggested that probably wasn't the brightest thing the Norseman had ever said. Let's go upstairs, Shard said, as he clicked the wall switches that illuminated the stairs in the second-floor landing. They climbed slowly, and at the top, Shard motioned to Johnson to go to the left and check the room at that end. Shard moved quietly to the right to an open door. He peered around the jam and then walked into a guest bedroom with twin beds and a nightstand between them. He slid around the end of both beds and carefully opened the door to the closet. He stood off to one side, holding a sawed-off shotgun at waist level, and looked under the hanging clothes for legs. The floor was piled with shoe boxes two and three high, which made him wonder if Hope spent all her food money on shoes. Seeing no pants or feet behind the boxes, he turned to the door next to the closet. Shard pushed the partially ajar door open with the barrel of his shotgun. It was another empty bathroom. He turned on the lights and crossed the room to the open door opposite that connected with the master bedroom that featured a king-sized bed with a huge flat-screen TV at its foot. On the opposite side of the bed were mirrored sliding doors, a walk-in closet, he presumed. After taking a peek under the bed, that was home to dust bunnies the size of his fist, he turned on the overhead light and walked over to the mirrors. Shard flipped a nearby switch and saw light spill out from under the doors. He slid the right door open, keeping his body behind the other. The closet was huge, quite uncharacteristic for a house this age, he thought. Three walls held racks full of hanging garments. Two of them were crammed with a woman's clothes, and the other one held a long row of men's suits, interrupted in the middle by a white floor-to-ceiling built-in chest of drawers. Shard checked below the clothes on all three walls and found nothing except more women's shoes. As he turned to leave, he realized he couldn't see the other side of the chest. He kept his back to the suits and edged over to look. He found men's shoes, all perfectly aligned except for one odd pair that faced outwards. He flattened back against the white chest and said in a normal tone of voice, Bradley, this is Thomas Shard, and I think it's time we met. I should tell you that I have a double-barreled, sawed-off shotgun. Now listen to my instructions. I'm going to call my deputy to come in here, and then I'm going to count to three. If you have a gun, I want you to toss it out in the middle of the closet floor and then come out of there slowly with both hands on your head. If you don't, I will shoot you. Johnson, come here. Now, he yelled. One, Shard said. Nothing happened. Two, you're running out of time, Bradley. Before he could say three, Bradley said quietly, All right, I'm coming out. I'm unarmed. Don't shoot. Slowly, Shard ordered. Bradley did as he was told. In the bright closet light, Shard could see that his clothes were covered with blood, especially below the knees. Johnson rushed into the closet, holding the Glock with both hands in front of him. Sergeant Johnson, I want to introduce you to Bradley Fe Freeney, husband of the woman we found downstairs. 
Judging from his clothes, I'd say he had something to do with the nearly beating her to death. Cuff him, Norseman. I want to call my lawyer, Bradley said. I'm going to charge you both with police brutality. <laughs> Be my guest, Shard said. As he uncocked and lowered his shotgun, let's go downstairs. Your wife is on the way to the hospital, and the two Utica cops down there will escort you to the city lockup. You may call your lawyer and file charges there. Downstairs, Shard asked the Utica policeman to take Bradley in and charge him with attempted murder. And he added, you guys did an exemplary job. I'll call Captain Mussolini and tell him. Thanks. Just one more thing, Johnson said. What time do the bars close tonight? The swarthy, taller officer appeared puzzled and answered, Three o'clock. The Norseman looked at his watch. Perfect, boss. We have 22 minutes, and I know nice place only a couple blocks away. I need to finish my evening, which was so rudely interrupted. And by the way, it's your turn to treat. You'll get no argument from me, Norseman. Thursday morning, Shard's office. Are my eyes deceiving me, boss? I think I saw a hint of sun on my way in this morning, said Periwinkle as she walked into Shard's office. I missed that significant moment, Shard said, as he rummaged through the piles on his desk in search of an elusive camel. But I did notice that nothing was falling from the sky, and I took that as a good sign. In another three or four months, the snow will be gone. I'll put my top down and cruise the back roads. If your car starts, Johnson said, as he realized that he was relegated to the wastebasket again. It always starts, Norseman. Well, at least most of the time, Shard said cognizance of how stupid that sounded, and he fished a reclusive camel out of a used envelope. You two don't look too chirpy this morning, Periwinkle said. Did you hit the bars together last night, and I was warmly tucked into a restful sleep? Should we hit her now, boss, or wait? That was a joke, guys. I know, said Shard. But the truth is, we did close the bar in Utica this morning at something past three. I figure I got about ninety minutes of sleep. How about you, Norseman? No more than that. But we Norwegians are a tough lot. I feel as if I had two hours at least. <laughs> okay, what gives? I know that the last thing you'd do, boss, is to tag after the Viking to some tawdry joint in Utica. Where were you? Shard gave her a wan smile and explained. I called Catholic Hospital in Utica and hope is in critical but stable condition this morning. Whatever that means. The woman said she'd call me if Hope's condition changes. So we solved the case, Periwinkle asked. Well, we certainly solved the mystery of who tried to kill Hope. I don't think we could lose that one in court if we tried, especially if Hope pulls through. I'm a little less certain that we've solved Denise's murder, though. The evidence we have is an ironclad, but in my own mind, I'm absolutely sure that Bradley killed her, and his attempt to murder his wife was because he feared she would provide evidence to prove that he was Winter. She has at least circumstantial written confirmation that he used Winter's name. I think after you guys write up what you've collected and collate it with what we know about Hakon, we'll have enough for the DEA to charge Freeney. Notice who provided the crucial clue for this case, Norseman asked. My ancestors are still relevant, and you laugh at them, little Violet. Where do we go from here, Periwinkle asked, ignoring her colleague. We still have the other murder, boss, the Ellen and Lyons. You're going to need help on that. I'll ask Copper to get a warrant for Spinello's bank records to trace payments to Uncle Joe to cover his fee for trying to off yours truly. Ditto for Spinello's phone calls. He may evade us again, but he'll feel the heat. I've already talked to Hugh in Rochester Barracks and filled him in. He'll take it from here, but I'll stay in touch with him. I'll ask Captain Mussolini when I put in a call 
to put in a good word for his men, to coordinate his investigation with you guys and Hugh. I'll also put up Bug in Mussolini's ear too. send his toughest interrogator up here to see if he can break Pinelli, number two, before Bone springs him. If we can turn that shooter, it'll go a long way towards fingering Iorio. But I doubt Pinelli will break. He'd be signing his own death warrant, unless the court puts him under witness protection and relocates him to someplace like Amchita. Where, Johnson asked? In your part of the world, Shard said, the eastern end of the Aleutian Islands. All right, all right, yeah. What we need is Jarl Hakon to persuade Pinelli, number two, to prepare for his relocation. I bet he could do it, Johnson said. No doubt, but we'd end up with a mutilated dead prisoner downstairs and a lawsuit for unwarranted assault that would give the Kaiser conniptions, said Shard. Speaking of whom, you guys need to touch base with him. He hates being kept out of the loop, to use his cliché and mine. While we're doing the scut work, boss, what are you going to do after your phone calls? Periwinkle asked. I'm overworked as usual. I have to go all the way next door to see what Mrs. O has on special for lunch, and then spend the afternoon filling out paperwork on the DUI the boys arrested last night. I didn't hear about that, she said. How could you have missed it? They picked him up at two in the morning, doing 55 miles an hour on Black River Road. That's only five miles over the speed limit, Johnson said. Didn't they have anything else to do? Speed wasn't the problem. It seems the fellow didn't have any pants on. They got him for drunken exposure. It was ten below last night, Periwinkle said. Wasn't he a little cold down there? I would have been, but he was loaded and explained to your heartthrob young deputy Polk that he was going fishing. Fishing for what, she asked. Thursday evening at Shard's house. Shard relaxed in front of his fire with four fingers of the frog and a perfectly shaped fresh camel. The frog was in his usual evening fare, but it was his preferred drink when it was below zero. Its peaty flavor warmed him as much as his fire. The blast of Arctic weather that crept across Leiden after the snowstorm had kept the thermometer in the single digits or lower for six days. The whole town was frozen, making walking treacherous and the roads dangerous. He lighted his camel and dialed Ellen. Hello, beautiful. Oh, for Pete's sake, another crank call. If you breathe heavily, Buster, I'll call the cops. I am the cops, and we have to breathe too. How are things in the snow capital? With the tax deadline less than a month away, what do you think? I'm buried under deductions, irate filers, forms 1492, 1066, 1585, and whatever. Arcane regulations that even the IRS can't decipher, and a truculent Congress that's threatening to simplify the code. In other words, I'm having a ball. And you? It, it's, just it's just as tough here. I have to replenish my fire periodically, fetch more single malt, and search for camels. It's freezing outside, but everything inside is hot. Are you trying to tell me something, Lieutenant? What good will your heat do me when we're four hours apart? Tell you what, though. If you can get me in the mood, I'll run over to Leonard's Tavern to see if Alfonso Muft is ready. Can you hang on for a minute? I'll go see. Alfonso who? Muft. Used to be a welterweight boxer until he took one too many blows to the head. Nice enough guy. Great body. But a little slow. Exactly the way I like my men. Leonard gives him odd jobs and lets him sleep in the upstairs apartment. Forget Alfonso of the amazing body. I call for a couple reasons. The most important is that I'm free this weekend. How about it? What about your taxes? This would be a perfect weekend for you to do them. Not what I had in mind, exactly. Numbers don't excite me. You do. 
Are you planning to take a respite from molesting the tax code to come up here to say hello to your poor, old, lonely mother? She misses you, you know. That's low even for you, deputy. Using my not-poor, sword-edle elderly mother to slather guilt all over her attractive, professional, unmarried daughter, who has shown only a passing interest in you over the years, is, I repeat, really low. I plead guilty on all accounts. Nothing is too base when I'm trying to lure you into my embrace, and I mean that in the most wicked sense. To show you how needy I am, I'm willing to make the ultimate sacrifice and trek all the way out there for the opportunity to uh, lay uh, uh, my eyes upon you. Girl can't be too careful these days, Lieutenant, so I have to ponder your unselfish offer. For example, I need to know how many more thugs have tried to kill you since we last talked. And will your amorous presence in my embrace attract them here? Or have you given up trying to get yourself killed? I have no desire to become collateral damage, especially during tax season, when I make the really big bucks. That's the other less important reason I call, to reassure you that nobody is trying to kill me at the moment. That means that they aren't trying to do you in either. The Buffalo State Police kept an eye on you for the past couple of weeks. You were always safe, and you may thank me in person this weekend. That's no news, gunslinger. I knew they were watching. Corporal Jose O'Meara told me that when I invited him home for drinks and a candlelit dinner afterwards, I asked him warmly for his attention to my well-being. He was soon gratefully vowed his continuous watchfulness. There's something about cops that turns me on. I wish I could cure that. Right. Start working on it after this weekend. This one's mine. Oh, I'm still thinking about that. And while you're thinking, let me tell you why I'm now safe. Do you have, a t you have time? I have all night, Lieutenant. I've already admitted I'm a sucker for a man in blue uniform, but I am relieved that you're out of danger. Seriously. Thanks. Shard inundated her with the most recent details on both murders and Bradley's attempted one. When he finished, he asked, Are you still awake? Sorry to go to such a length, but I thought you might like a good story on a cold night. Wait a minute while I get another glass of Merlot, will you? I have a question. Ellen returned quickly. Still there? Yeah. You think I'd hang up before you invited me for the weekend? My query, Primo Snoop, has a bearing on my decision. What you say makes sense, even if some of your presumed evidence is softer than a tax code interpretation. But you haven't put any of these miscreants in jail, except Radley. The rest are free and armed, and therefore free to shoot you. And if you're here in my embrace without your cannon, free to shoot you here, and me, and Alice. And she's only twelve. Well, close to thirteen now. Would you care to comment, Blue Adonis? All true. That's it? You propose to lead all these baboons, homicidical maniacs, hitmen, organized criminals, bipolar murderers, cannibals, humbuggers, and God knows what else into my lair just to get a hug. Maybe more than just a hug. Fat chance, my disarming friend. Okay, you win. We can't arrest them yet. We need more evidence. So Johnson and Periwinkle will have to prove that my deductions are really facts. When they finished, and when the culprits are safely chained to the walls in your dungeon, maybe I'll invite you to come see me. It's not as dangerous as you fear. Iorio and Spinella are feeling the heat. They know they're, we're closing in, and they won't do anything to attract attention. I'm certain they will have them all before the bar before your clients line up for your yearly IRS audits. We're safe. 
You may be my friend, I'm not so certain about me, especially around you. Your facts aren't the only thing that's soft about you. Exactly to what are you referring? Your heart, for one. Oh, on that I'm guilty as charged, at least when you're concerned. On second or third thought, Lieutenant, I'd love to see you this weekend, but you have to promise one thing. What's that? You'll bring a real car. Oh, that's low. What time do you finish tomorrow? Whenever you appear at my door, big boy. And that's the end of Volume 2. I hope that my, my listeners enjoyed it, and I hope you stay tuned for Volume 3. In the meantime, check on our contest for Volume 4, because um, we're, we're offering an opportunity for the really imaginative amongst you to come up with who did it. And we will produce it at this very place on our podcast. Thank you.